Well, it's good to be in church. And I mean in the, in the house of God rather than camp meeting for change. My wife and I talked to her yesterday. I went through three long camp meetings consecutively. And uh, I was in the 60-some services in those less than four weeks. And I said, I probably went to church more in those four weeks than many people do all year long. <clears throat> so I'm just happy that I can be in the house of God. And now I feel a little bit ashamed that I only have, have to preach three or four times. I feel like I'm shirking my duty. But I will tell you, I have been seeking the mind of Christ and preparing my own mind and heart for what I think God wants me to share with you as he has shared it with me. And always remember when I'm speaking to you, I've already assimilated this in me. I'm not telling you anything I don't need to walk in the light of myself. I'm going to invite you tonight, and I, I'm going to be speaking these evenings because we're in, you know, Friday, Saturday. I'm sure most of us are men and women that love God and are serving God. And I like to speak to the depths of our responsibility to God, to the church, to the world, and certainly to our Lord. And so I'm going to particularly be speaking to the church. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read just about 12 verses. It's a little lengthy, but I'm going to allow you to remain seated because I'm going to move then to my text. My context is found in Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to set this down. Genesis chapter 22, and I want to read the first 12 verses, and you'll recognize the incident that is taking place. And I must tell you, it's a very hard truth. Uh, oftentimes it is. I remember sitting, listening to Dr. William Greathouse one time, and he made a statement to the preachers. He said, you know, we are not called to explain, we are called to proclaim his word. Now he said proclamation will certainly have a measure of explanation, but the Holy Spirit's job is to drive it to our hearts. And he said, whatever you do, don't do the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to be very careful to stay close to the Word and let it do its own work by the ministry of the Spirit. I trust you're open to the Holy Spirit. One of you are. I'm thankful for that one. Genesis 22, and it came to pass after these things that God did test Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, he said, behold, here am I. And he said, take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled his ass, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, rose up, went into the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father and said, My father, here am I, here am I Lord. I'm sorry, here am I, son. And he said, Behold the fire 
and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand, took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here am I. He said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Listen to that last phrase. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Could you stand with me a moment? I will lift my text now from a very familiar passage in Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Father, we've come to the house tonight to worship you. We would ask somehow, Lord, that you would some way bring all of our wandering thoughts into captivity and they would focus on your word, your truth. And we will see it from your vantage point and that each of us, Lord, will apply it to us on a very personal level. Thank you for your presence tonight. Thank you for the way that you've walked with us down through these days. And yea, that you are here now. Take control of the furtherance of the service and even throughout this weekend. We realize how rapidly time moves and how quickly the time together will be over. But what we do, let us do quickly and urgently to the glory of God, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You can't read that passage of Scripture without recognizing there are shades of Calvary that flows through the whole story. For example, he said, I want you, Abraham, to take your son, your only son. If you remember, God gave his only begotten son to die for you and me. If you remember that Isaac had a miraculous birth, and by that, you recall that Isaac and Abraham or Abraham and Sarah were 100 years old, long past childbearing age before they received this promised son called Isaac. You also remember that there was a miraculous conception when Jesus came into the world. He was conceived in the womb of the virgin by the Holy Spirit. You notice that Isaac carried his own wood up that mountain. You also know, don't you, that Jesus made his way up the Via Della Rosa bearing his own cross on the way to Calvary's hill. You also notice with me there's a three-day journey took Abraham to get from where he was to Mount Moriah. It was three days, you recall, that Jesus was in the tomb before he rose from the dead. I guess I'm just sharing with you and I don't have time to uncover it all, but there are shades of the cross all through this interesting story. 
Now, I want to talk to you primarily about this matter of total abandon to God, entire consecration. And I'm assuming those to whom I'm speaking have already been born of the Spirit, who already know God as their Savior. This is something subsequent to and unique from that experience. Every Christian will sooner or later have to face the matter of an entire commitment of all that he has and all that he ever hopes to be, and he's supposed to give this wholly to God. It's what we call an eternal love covenant in the experience of entire consecration. Now, the approach oftentimes is very gradual, but there will come a moment of its consummation. There will come a moment when it will be completed. As any bride and groom following an engagement for some time will eventually make a love covenant of marriage one with another, they contemplate permanency. In fact, we even state till death do us part. Now, in all of those days following in the marriage, there will be a lot of adjustments made in that relationship, but that covenant must be steadfast and complete throughout. Now, their law of sacrifice is operative in two realms in this Bible. There's the sacrifice of atonement that's governed by the law of blood. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. But then there is the sacrifice of worship, and that's governed by the law of love. And only agape can make this sacrifice. Only God's child can make the sacrifice of love. That's why I read in Romans 12, verse 1, the Apostle Paul gives this endearing plea to the Christian. It's a classic call to consecration, and he lovingly pleads on the basis of God's mercies that we present ourselves a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. His appeal, you notice, is made to the brethren. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, and they were admonished to present their bodies, which entailed the whole of the person, and they were to give their bodies a living and a holy and acceptable sacrifice, which sinner could never accomplish. And by the way, if you read further, they would find the will of God acceptable as well. Consequently, it's a sacred act of holy worship. And I think sometimes we have taken it way too lightly and we just seem to think, well, I'm going to go rededicate. I'm going to go reconsecrate. I'm going, I want to tell you something, folks. It may mean that we ought to be repenting more than reconsecrating. Consecration should not have to be done over and over and over and over. If I were to have to come to my wife and say, honey, I'd like to reconsecrate my marriage vow to you today. I can tell you exactly what she'd ask me. Why? You know what I'm talking about. And I can tell you that God will not tolerate spiritual infidelity. And he is talking about this total abandon. Essential condition for cleansing from indwelling sin. Now, when we get saved, God forgives the sinner. But he doesn't forgive sin. He has to cleanse sin. Forgives the sinner, but he cleanses the sin. And I know there are those who have walked with God who have struggled at this point following their relationship in conversion. And they began to feel something of a conviction that they know not what. I'm convinced that the believer's conviction for the total cleansing of the heart 
seldom comes from intellectual debates or arguments. I do not believe that's what moves people to make this abandonment of, to, of themselves to God. I'm convinced it usually grows out of an awareness that we are not living spiritually up to the heights of God's command on our life. And consequently, as Jesus said in his scriptures over and again, I do always those things that please the Father. In fact, Jesus three different times said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when one truly receives Christ as their savior, there's something of a momentum in him or her that they long to be pleasing to the one to whom they owe their forgiveness. But I can tell you, tell you just as it was in my own experience my desire to be a pleasure to God was found lacking because there was something yet remaining in my heart that would not respond in pleasure to God it's called by many names and I will define it in just a moment as love abounds more and more in you as we are admonished to experience in first Thessalonians we soon discover that holiness is two-sided it is love and hate. You say hate? <laughs> we love God and holiness with a burning devotion. But we hate everything unholy with a flaming aversion. The scripture says, ye that love the Lord hate evil. I didn't say that. God's word says that. And when one is truly born again, he will find something that does not correspond with what God's will is for that person's life and ultimately there will be sort of a shifting of their consecration or their relationship with God that is not very becoming. Now, let me also say we teach two works of grace but we do not teach two standards of living. In fact when you're saved you're going to get all of God at that point that you're going to need what he does in sanctification he takes out of you something that you don't need so that you can more fully walk with him and be fruitful in his kingdom for he purges the vine that it brings forth more fruit or much fruit and so consequently don't get the idea well he's saved but he he's going to sin a little bit because he's not been sanctified that's not true. The minimum measure of grace acceptable is an intense desire for the maximum measure of grace that's available. In other words, you want the moment you're saved to be pleasing to God. You want to do everything that is His will in your life. And I do not believe that I preach to a bunch of rebels. I think I preach to people that love God and want to know God better. And I think there are areas of our Bible that makes it clear to us what we have to do so this conflict does not overwhelm us. Sometimes we lose the concept of what is normal Christianity. We live oftentimes very subnormal in our Christian walk. Entire consecration, when I said to you a moment, when it's committed, must become complete. Now you say, how can that be? I recall whenever I made that consecration complete in my own experience, and I'm sure I can mimic your experience. I remember that everything, and I was just a young teenage lad at the time. And when I came to the altar, because I sensed something displeasing to God, something that was out of contrary to God's will and His law and His love, I realized there was a tremendous lack 
in my heart and my life. And by the way, that's revealed throughout the word. If you go over to 1 Thessalonians, where they had a work of faith, a labor of love, a patience of hope, and their faith had been heard of throughout all Macedonia and Achaia, and they turned from idols to God to serve the true and the living God. All of that was walking in the light of God, but all of a sudden, Paul says, I'm praying night and day exceedingly that I might see your face and perfect that which is lacking in your faith. And he wanted them to become established in holiness. They didn't lose their faith. They had a lack in their faith. And this will surface eventually as you walk with God. Now I recall when I made my consecration complete. I was just a young lad and so I gave everything to God that I knew. And I have to be very candid, I didn't know much. But I also realized I had to give everything to him that I did not know. And I can tell you, the, they used to call it the known and the unknown bundle. I can tell you the unknown bundle was far greater than the known bundle. I didn't know what was in the unknown. That's why it's called an unknown. But I could trust the God that saved me for the unknown. And my life across these nearly 59 years, having known him, has been a continual transferring out of the unknown into the known until I can tell you tonight that known bundle has grown to great capacity and the unknown has gotten smaller. Amen. We have to keep our consecration up to date. In fact, we must keep the bottom of our life ever equal to the top of our light. I live in the study most of the time and maybe sometimes more than I should. But I can tell you in the study of God's word, it never has flattered me. And there is a constant new light that comes to me that I have to keep moving upwards. Keep my heart equal to the light that comes to me. I worry sometimes that we come to church like we do maybe any other setting. I don't ever want to come the same and leave the same that I came. And if we do, there's something seriously wrong in our walk with God. And truth is not debatable. It's absolute. And Dr. Greathouse, in warning us about not trying to do the work of the Holy Spirit as we preach the Word of God, I want to tell you my tendency would be because I think what we just read in Genesis is a very hard truth is to soft pedal this just a little bit to win the approval of those to whom I'm speaking. But he said, if you do that, he says, you're going to make him a twofold child of hell like you. He was speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes. So we have to face hard truth from time to time. It's not mine. It's God's truth. It will be necessary in our walk with Jesus to take God's side on every issue of life, even though we may not understand the providential will of God. I can tell you a man that did that, his name was Job, who lost everything, lost seven children. He lost his wealth and his health, but he finally says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The attitude of perfect consecration can only be maintained by the experience of entire sanctification. 
That's why Paul prayed to those who were lacking in their faith, they'd be established in holiness, that the very God of peace would sanctify you through and through. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We consecrate. He has to cleanse. I can present myself a living sacrifice, but though I present, He has to purify. And it's by faith that He does it, and He witnesses to the purifying of the heart. Just as you knew when you were born again, you will know when your heart is clean. Now stay with me. Some of you look like I'm being harsh. You know, there remains in the heart of every Christian, every born-again Christian, something that did not repent when you did. It's called our old man. Paul speaks of it in Romans 6, 6. He said, our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed. There's only two other places where that phrase, our old man, is used. It's in Ephesians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. And every time it's written, it does not say we're to suppress the old man, we're to hold the old man down, we're to counteract the old man. He said, put it off. Just as you would take your coat and put it off. Cleansed purged from your heart. It's the work of God that cleanses the soul. Now, what is this thing I'm talking about? Well, there's a lot of names, but Paul clarifies it, I think, as clear to anyone in Romans 8 when it says it's the carnal mind. The carnal mind that is enmity against God, not subject to the law of God. Let me tell you what it is. It is a perversion in your heart that is hostile to God's will and is insubordinate to his law. You cannot make this perversion to abide by the will of God or to bow to the law of God. And by the way, folks, God can't. That's why he says, I have to purge that from the heart. It's a perversion that you and I inherited because of the fall of our first parents. It's not your fault, it's there. It wasn't my fault, it was there. It's not something we can confess and ask God to forgive. We didn't do it. But we can bring this thing and ask God to purge, to cleanse, to destroy, to put off. Those are the terms used. And folks, you know when that occurs. Richard Taylor made the statement that uh, Adam's choice was different than our choice. Adam, when he was in the garden, holy, perfect, come from the hand of God, manifesting the image of God. He said God made him for fellowship. But he said, he also said there are some prohibitions. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you eat thereof, you'll die. And Adam decided, following Eve's being deceived by the serpent, he'd go ahead and disobey God's law. His determination was not to confirm God's will in creation by being holy. His determination was to reject God and yield to the enemy. He could have confirmed his holy state and we would never have to be facing this tonight. But he didn't. 
But his choice was confirmation, which he failed to do. Now that sin has passed upon the whole human race, our choice is different. Ours is not confirmation, it's restoration. In other words, he could have confirmed it and sealed it, but he didn't, and so death has passed upon us. Now we who are sinful have to be restored to our lost estate and have the restoration of the image of God through the process of Calvary. When Jesus died on the cross, he made provision to cleanse us from this inherited, from this inherited perversion as well as restores to the image of God. I think sometimes we have limited the atoning work of Christ. Well, he, he died to save me. That isn't all he died to do. He not only died to forgive you, he died now that you are forgiven to cleanse you so that he can live in you and you can be his vessel of honor, sanctified and used of God to reach a world that's dying. Amen. And all too many times, I think we get a little selfish. Well, thank God I don't have to go to hell. I got saved. I don't understand that mindset. It would require a total abandonment and consecration on our part to experience the heart. Now you say, why did I read this Genesis 22? Let me illustrate it in the text that I read in Genesis of Abraham. Abraham was tested at the most sensitive point in his life. When God said this, he said, Take now thy son Abraham, thine only son Isaac, and when thou, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him therefore a burnt offering upon the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Let me say something to you tonight. I pray God never tests me that severely. But the fact that God tested Abraham, and Abraham came through unscathed, means whatever the test is, God's grace is sufficient. No matter how many other people may fail. And the reason he was able to face that temptation and come out victorious was if you remember years before, he made an entire consecration to God. All you'd have to do is go to Genesis 17 and his name now was Abram, not Abraham yet. Abram, he said, I'm the almighty God. Now, why did he say that? The Almighty God is the El Shaddai God. That's the God that is enough. In other words, what I'm about to command you, I can enable you. He never asks us to do a thing, but what His grace will enable us to do it. I'm the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Complete. Whole, if you please. And it was there on that order of consecration that He pleased God. But I want you to understand, I'm not trying to be dramatic tonight. I'm trying to be very forceful. And what I think God wants me and you both to know, it's one thing to lay everything on the altar of consecration. And it's entirely something else to stay yielded when He does with us what He sees best for us, even though we don't understand. There's a phrase, <clears throat> deny yourself. Do you know what we're confusing? We're confusing denial of, of the self with depriving of the self. Okay, I guess I got to deny myself. I'm not going to buy me a new coat this winter. I got to deny myself. I'm not going to get that new automobile. No, that's depriving yourself. When you deny yourself, it means exactly that. You own no rights to yourself. 
You've already given them to Christ who purchased you on the cross of Calvary. You're not your own. Are you all quiet because you're, you don't want to say amen? I'm not my own. I'm his. And consequently, it's interesting. Yeah, God, I'll do so much for you, but I, I'm gonna, I don't feel like you want me to do that. I, I don't want to do that. I'll tell you one thing. You won't stay long with him. I'm worried that we have such shallow Christianity today. We've lost the depths of what God really demands of us. And while he demands it, I remind you again, he enables us. For some of us, if we make that complete consecration, it may be the loss of prestige or the loss of possessions or the loss of power. Hold on. It may mean that you'll lose some personal friends. Not everybody's going to go with you. I can tell you I have experienced some of that on a very painful level. And I don't feel like airing it out. But it's not a fun thing. I've thought oftentimes of Paul. What he must have suffered. A lot of his former friends and how they ridiculed him and belittled him even in the public arena. They say of John Wesley, his wife was constantly accusing him of things publicly while he was trying to declare the gospel. It's a tough way to live, folks. We scarcely can comprehend this command that God gave to Abraham. You know, when I read this, all human reasoning would argue against this being God's will. Now remember, he said, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, and offer him back to me in a burnt offering on Mount Moriah. When I said to you, all human reason, he argues against this being God's will. In the first place, God had miraculously given that son to him when he was 100 years old, he and, he and Sarah. I also would remind you of the covenant God made with Abraham that the seed as the stars of heaven hinged and was contingent on this young man named Isaac. I also think that uh, if you read God's word carefully, human sacrifice was condemned by God himself as heathen worship. And of all things, it violated every God-given instinct of a parental love that he would sacrifice his own son. It was a supreme test of consecrating faith. And that's why I said to you a moment ago, I pray God never tests me that so far. He was willing to give the dearest thing in life. By faith, Hebrews says, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Now go with me in your mind. I tried to imagine what must have been going on in this whole scenario. And I've often wondered what Abraham had to, had to think whenever God told him in the first place initially, I want you to go give me that son. It, it was the night that he rested or tried to and never slept a wink. Because it was the next morning he got those other two fellas to get the wood and the stuff to start on the journey. And then he said to his son, Isaac, come on. 
And all the way along, he knew what the inevitable was going to be. And his son certainly didn't. Those servants didn't. And yet he carried that in his own heart as he made his way three days journey to this mountain. And finally, when he got to the mountain, he told those other two fellows, you, you fellas stay back here. The son and I are going up on the mountain of worship and we'll return again. Son, take the wood. Take the wood, son. And he took the knife and he took the fire. I can see them. I've walked with them in my mind as they made their way, trudging up that mountainside. And finally the son began to be inquisitive. He said, Dad, we forgot something, Dad. You got the fire and the knife, or not the knife. You got the fire. I got the wood. Where's the lamb? Notice what he says. In fact, when I read this, I can tell you what I think. I think as he was walking that mountain and Isaac began to pour out these questions to him, I'm convinced the father had to turn his head to keep him from seeing the tears dripping out of his eyes. And he looked at him and said, God will provide himself a lamb. Notice what he did not say. He did not say, God will himself provide a lamb. He said, God will provide himself a lamb. You talk about a prophetic statement. God was going to be that lamb. And I can see as they get up there, and I'm sure Isaac's trying to figure this all out. They get the altar made, and they get it constructed according to Abraham's plan. And finally, I can see him take this young man. Did you ever ask yourself, you talk about the obedience of Isaac. You talk about the type of Christ. He looked at him, wondered where the lamb was, where the sacrifice was. And finally, his father says, come on, son. And he stretches him out on that altar, ties him to the altar. And all of a sudden, Isaac, probably with a pathetic look in his eyes, looking up to the father who knew what it was waiting and I can see the Father knowing I've got to take His life. I've got to give Him back to God. And I can see Him as He pulls the flap off the side of His tunic and feels the heart where it's beating because He says, if I'm going to thrust this knife in Him, I don't want to do it two or three times. I don't want to miss the heart. And I can see as that heart begins to pump. And he probably been hiding that knife all along and out from behind. He pulls it out and shines in the sun and just about ready to thrust it through. Abraham, Abraham, lay not your hand on the lad. For now, I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son that thou lovest. We must reach the point. And when I said to you a moment ago, I'm not talking to you any differently than I'm talking to me. I wrestled with this. We have to put the dearest things in our heart on the altar. Easy? No. 
But you see, that was not the end of that story, as you well know, because about that time when he let him go and he offered him a ram, the Son of God in heaven looked to the Father and said, Father, we're coming back here again, aren't we? He said, yes, son. Only well, said, the next time you're not going to withdraw the knife. No, son. And 2,000 years ago, God gave the dearest thing, gave his only begotten son you and I can do no less folks I think all the time I really I'm really concerned I think we think all that's necessary just get saved so we don't go to hell God didn't save us come to save us from hell he came to save us from sin sin makes hell an impossibility but it makes heaven a glorious reality and folks, you know what? You can't either go to heaven or to hell alone. You won't go either place alone. Someone's going with you. I know I've almost sounded like a wild man, I suppose, tonight. But I'm reminded of Paul in Philippians. You remember after he recounted his pedigree in his pre-Christian life, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless, and on and on. He gave all those beautiful accolades and all that he had accomplished. And then he turned around and he simply said, I counted it loss. And two verses later, he says, and yea, I count. I counted it back then, and I'm continuing to count it all lost that I may know him. It's a whole lot easier to count the loss than suffer the loss. Be sure, our consecration will be tested. You say, man, you're not giving us anything to shout about. <laughs> Some of you I know, and we, my wife and I have been praying for you. Been, you've been facing tough times. Your heart has been broken. Your sorrow has increased. The pain is almost unbearable. I know. I know. And every one of us had to face those dark and difficult times. If I can say anything at all that will encourage you, I want to read you this. Our God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. That you all, always having all sufficient in all things, may abound every good work. I, uh, I've never dealt with this quite before. It's, it's been a hard thing for me to deal with. But I think, church, and I'm talking to me, and I know your pastor does it every week, and I understand that. If you, if you stand in our place, you understand. We're not, we're not talking down to you. In fact, we have to suffer this first and then we suffer along with you. 
This world's no friend of grace. It's no friend of God. We're not in heaven yet. <laughs> we're on a journey. And the battle's raging. And we're fighting a foe. And the enemy is vicious. If it were not for him who's greater than he that's in the world, we could never stand. But the good news is, when you release it to him, it's his, not yours. It's his battle. I know it's hard. I want so bad. To share something with you. But I don't feel free that I can. But I want to tell you the grace of God is greater than all the sin. And I can tell you, as many of you have gone through these times, God's big enough. He's El Shaddai. He's the enough God. You know, I'd like to ask you to do something. In fact, I don't even think, um, Amy, we're going to sing. I just feel like it'd be nice if we just together, it's just us here tonight. I know your pastor does it from time to time, and I, I always appreciate when we just feel free to just come forward and I think it'd be a good thing to say, God, I, I, I just want you to speak in these next, what, three services. And I don't want to stay the same level that I am. I want to go deeper with you. And I wonder if you just stand with me even now. And I'm going to ask before we even pray, if you say, I'd like to come and stand in front of this altar. Just, just come just a moment. I won't, I won't pull on you. If you don't want to come, you feel free. But it just seems to me, I, I, I know when Pastor and I were talking about the weekend, I was happy to be able to come. I had the time open. And, and I have been ever since praying, God, let, let's, let's have a real spiritual movement. Just, just, that's what you want. You got other people who can come and preach. You don't need a man, you need him. But I want you to just come in here just a moment. And I know you've been praying for it. I, I know it's in your bulletin and I know you've been... Let's just pray on a personal level wherever each one of us are and ask God, what is there, Lord, out of all of this you want from me? You know, while we come, revivals, I think, in the service, it's unique to any other meeting. And I say that because oftentimes we come as a group but the fact is, God does not minister in groups. He ministers on a very personal level. And He knows us all intricately, but He wants to know you intimately. And the measure of the depths of that intimacy is your determination. And I want to know Him better than I've ever known Him. Would you bow your heads and you say your prayer and we'll say ours. Father, We don't want to live on the edges or on the fringes. We don't want to be shallow in our walk with you. We want you to know the depths of our heart. And we want you to dwell therein. 
And we pray that your refining fires will purge the very dross out of our heart. And they will come out tried as pure gold and you will see your image in each one of us. And the world around us, Lord, will see Christ. There are those, Lord, that we know standing before us tonight that have gone through some very dark days. Troubling waters. Questions arise, where and why? How? We may not know all of that, but we know the who. And we're putting our faith in you. You're mindful of us. You know where we are and who we are. You won't let us go through more than we are going to give grace enough to bring us through. You're the El Shaddai God. You're the God that supplies the resource that comes from no other place. And so God, we trust you tonight. And we lay ourselves, literally lay ourselves before you and pray your divine will be done. We don't understand oftentimes the providence of your will, but we can trust you. And we do. Thank you for these. We know they could have done a lot of different things on a Friday night. But Jesus, as we see the world conditions and we see it locally and we see it all around us, we need to become very serious minded about this day and our place in the world. Thank you for your presence tonight, for ministering to my own heart. I need to go and seek your face. We love you. These love you. Thank you for our pastor, his wife, the burdens they carry of a mass congregation day by day, week after week. And all officers of the church and so many of them, Lord, that are wrestling with things we don't even know. We're not privy to know, but you know. We pray a special double portion will be theirs. And God, give us a continuance of your mind. We're not trying to do anything but be true to you and faithful to your call and certainly faithful to those we speak to. Guide and direct us now in the furtherance of these, this weekend, these few meetings together. And in everything that's accomplished, we'll give you the praise. But we ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Pastor, do you have any closing words? No, just see you all tomorrow night. God bless.